Hello, I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a show about conversation, community, and the people that bring community to life. My guest today is James Syme, Executive Director of Micah House. James Syme is the Executive Director of Micah House, an emergency family homeless shelter located in Council Bluffs, Iowa. He holds a Master's of Public Administration with an emphasis in nonprofit management. James is a 2018 Fellow of New Leaders Council Omaha and is active in numerous social organizations. His positive impact in the community has garnered national and local recognition, including recognition from the John C. Maxwell Transformational Leadership Award Top 100. As a child, James himself experienced homelessness and advocates for people from the perspective of his own lived experience. James, welcome to the show. Thank you, Stuart. So I think the word homeless and the word homelessness can be misunderstood in terms of what it really means and what that shows up like in people's lives. So could you offer some definition and some description of what these terms mean? I think homeless and homelessness in its purest form is uh, somebody not having a place to call their own if they so desire. So uh, I think where some of the confusing aspects come in is if you have a family staying with another family, is that family homeless, right? Well, they are in a home, but it isn't their home. And I guess if you were able to speak with that uh, individual who was heading that family unit, what would be their desire? So for me, if you desire to be in a home of your own and you're not currently in a home of your own, then you're homeless. But there are a lot of stigmas and questions and people often, I think if it doesn't meet their Hollywood interpretation of what homelessness is, and sometimes literally talking about Los Angeles having a huge literal homeless problem. Um, So individuals on the streets, uh, literally in cardboard boxes with shopping carts. And since we don't see a lot of that in the Omaha metro area, people assume that the issue doesn't exist, but it's very real and it's alive. I think that's interesting because, yes, I have had that thought. If you say to me, homelessness, then the image that comes to mind is the one that is culturally fed to me. That's the first instant reaction I have. It's it's of the person in the cardboard box, maybe um, you know under a bridge. This this kind of image, and I appreciate the the bias of that, but it jumps to mind. And yet, then the second image is of uh, I don't know what the term is, but couch surfing, and that I think is as much a part of the problem and as much a part of the psychological damage that can occur from homelessness uh, as that initial image of the sort of person in the cardboard box. Yeah, so that's a yeah, it's a good distinction is um, ultimately those individuals we see literally on the streets have probably frayed numerous relationships. Um, so I would imagine at one point in time, maybe they did have a family or friend uh, that they stayed with at one point in their life and maybe it was an ongoing mental health struggle or a substance abuse issue or combination of both or personality disagreement. Um, We just know that those doubled up situations, although good in the moment because somebody isn't literally on the streets, uh, they are very fragile. And when we talk about family units specifically, 
Uh, when you start talking about eight and nine and 10 people and two bedroom units, you have to start thinking about, is there enough space for a child to do homework? Is there enough groceries in the fridge, in the cabinets? Is there enough space to sleep? And then, as we know, our personalities are formed during those early childhood years. How do you form your personality when you are, you know, stacked up on each other? And then what, what is your view of what your potential is um, because you stayed in that situation? So there are a lot of psychological things that happen from both being without a home and being on the streets and what society perceives of you and your potential. Some of what you've suggested some of what you've talked about there suggests pathways into and through homelessness and different risk factors that apply to that. So I could imagine that you maybe enter homelessness in in terms of doubling up or finding yourself uh, moving from couch to couch and and using up relationships until there are no more. And then incrementally the situation worsens until you really are at a place of last resort, which may be um, outdoors. So what are some of the, if there's a typical trajectory, what are some of the typical trajectories of homelessness? I think what we, what we can see, and specifically talking about what we've done at Micah House, is um, starting in October of 2016, we started to assess all of our adults. So we serve families and single females, and we started to assess them using a tool called Adverse Childhood Experiences. So looking at how their childhood was. And through that thread, what we're seeing is our folks experience adversity greater than the larger population and the domains that they experience it in um, are greater than the common population. So correlation is not causation. And I think the research needs to be done at those two things. What are these adverse childhood experiences? What's the likelihood that having an adverse childhood experience, you know, increases incrementally on the way to saying your likelihood of being homeless because you have five of these adverse childhood experiences is 70 times greater than somebody with zero. There hasn't been that level of research, although we know if you grow up in a fractured home, a single parent household, you've witnessed violent relationships, you witnessed substance abuse, someone in your household had mental health issue, so you may be more prone to mental health issue and substance abuse issue. You start to stack these things on top of each other, and the trajectory kind of lays itself out. You're you're afforded less opportunities because of the environment that you grew up in, which you know means that maybe schooling is more difficult. Which, if you have a you know a substance abuse is you know is ingrained in you from a biological standpoint, meaning you had one or two parents who struggled, then you're more likely to. So as you turn maybe early on and start to experiment with drugs, you know, you have a problem uh, kind of backing off. Um, so I would say our, our folks, the common thread is life had been complex and hard. It isn't real common that somebody had gone through life unscathed and just ended up homeless. Those individuals would still have positive supports and networks in the community who would pick them up. We still do have individuals who have a workplace injury or, you know, get in a horrific accident or, you know, have some medical bills that catch up on them, you know, and they delay payments and they end up becoming homeless. But even when we scratch the surface of those individuals, 
there is some trauma underneath all of that. So although they had, you know, made a successful life and had been working and providing in the community, there is still a common thread of trauma through all of that. So when your life experience, especially if you're a child, is one in which the context is both complex and in some ways traumatic, what you're describing is a cycle of homelessness that could be generational, let alone linear and time-based for one particular person. For, for children, this could be passed down from adult to child because of the nature of the context and, and this generational cycle. Yeah, and your understanding of what permanency is, right? We talk about that doubled up situation and how that's not likely to be a long-term situation unless you have a grandparent situation. So, yeah, I think it becomes cyclical for several reasons. Some of them, uh, substance abuse can be passed down. Uh, it can be a hereditary thing. So you're more likely to have a substance abuse issue if you also then grew up in an unstable environment and you also had a single parent household and you also and you also and you see how this all stacks up. So yeah, it can be very cyclical. And that's the complexity of poverty, right? It, it's not a lot of choices, but it's the environments that people that were that these individuals grew up in and the opportunity for them to be connected to adults who had different environments. No parent chooses to have their kids in an unstable environment, but the likelihood if you assess that parent or that individual, that's kind of what they experience. So it happens again and it happens again. So it just creates this culture of that's all you know and life is very difficult. And, you know, maybe we'll be able to hold down a job and maybe through that job we'll be able to get an apartment, but likely that apartment won't meet all of our needs. And, you know, if that apartment's there for six months, great, but maybe it won't be. And just so the stability factor. And then you have kids moving schools and all of these, you know, down the line issues. Am I right that earlier you were suggesting that the ACEs, the Adverse Childhood Experience Score, that that ACEs research itself was fairly new and that the research in into the causes and the reasons for the perpetuation of homelessness is perhaps as not robust as it as it might be and you're you're right on that because the individuals that started that research and they have a pretty robust sample size 17,000 people that they've been following now you know a little over 20 years so they have a pretty good indicator but it was Kaiser Permanente and the CDC. So they were looking at it from a health outcome standpoint. It's just now other providers are starting to take that research. And they're saying, wait, our folks are experiencing this thing at a greater degree than the general population. What does that mean about these 10 indicators? And then, so it's like, it wasn't tailor-made for the intent of homelessness, but uh, again, correlation isn't causation, but there have been people that have drawn some dotted lines to saying you have a high A score, your likelihood for homelessness is this. And maybe it's you can't say the A score, but somebody who grew up experiencing these things, it becomes kind of a no duh thing. But we need to get at the root of is one a better indicator than the other? And if it is, then if we can identify a child or a family or an individual who has experienced that. And maybe there are some front-end resources, but that's pretty idealistic thinking because we don't have a lot of resources to deal with the population uh, that's experiencing homelessness as it is. Uh, so maybe that's more curiosity, but 
as they said, curiosity killed the cat. Uh, so we, we got enough, we got enough on our plate as it is, but it is, it is interesting. And it's also serves as a messaging point to the community. When I can say that, you know, 32 to 33% of the adults that are entering Micah house were victims of childhood sexual abuse. It usually catches people on their back foot um, because there's a lot of these assumptions about choice. Individuals, because they are now adults, made these choices and their choices led them to become homeless. Well, they didn't choose to be sexually abused. They didn't choose to grow up in a home with domestic violence. They didn't choose to have a parent who ha had a substance abuse issue. They didn't choose to have a parent who went to prison. But that was their reality, right? So choices made thereafter were based on that ingrained childhood experience. So sure, there are choices that were made, but in context, those choices weren't made in normal situations, in what we would have the ideal childhood. That's, that's not the reality. been touching on some of those attitudes that we have what what are some of these myths and and misunderstandings that we have about homelessness and the homeless right i think i think the problem lies where so say somebody has a substance abuse issue right they chose to drink they choose to continue to drink they don't have the resources to even support that habit um, let alone it's hard to maintain a job and your health and all of those other things. So they just draw the line between this person has a substance abuse issue and then they are homeless. And that's all the further they choose to look at the issue. But as we discussed, if somebody had a really traumatic childhood, if any of us have experienced trauma, uh, we, you can talk about, you know, PTSD and combat veterans as they're coming back and assimilating back into the community. Individuals that have experienced a great degree of trauma try to find some way to cope. One easily, readily accessible means is alcohol in our community. People are wrong because maybe they don't know or they just don't take the time. I say our society is really guilty because we are 100 miles an hour. We want to sum up someone's situation uh, as quick as we can, so I call them drive-by judgments. You drive by somebody and you want to say, ah, yeah, that's Stuart. And, you know, Stuart is this because of that. Okay, on my way. And life is far more complex than that. We all arrive at our journeys and destinations 
from struggles, from successes, people supporting us or not supporting us, our home environments, uh, our biology. So all of these things, it's, it's very complex. So I don't blame people for trying, trying to think about the issue. I just think they're not spending enough time understanding the complexity of it. And it's complex. I work in the field, you know, 60 hours a week uh, on most weeks. And it sometimes it's even hard for me to wrap around the complexity of issues. If somebody comes in and they've experienced all 10 ACEs, what do we do? Like, what do we do? There's not enough therapy in the world that is going to be paid for to remedy the complexity of that. So what do you do? And if I'm having that reaction, I know the population is, and we as humans are kind of wired. If, if we can't get our minds around it, we make a judgment and we kind of move on. You mentioned resources and resources provided to tackle homelessness and to address the, uh, the manifestations of it now and, and to eradicate it in terms of the causes. And I'm sure like many nonprofits, there just simply isn't enough uh, in terms of the resources to, to do that. And we're also talking about social attitudes towards homelessness. And I'm wondering if there is a connection between our social need to put the blame on the homeless person, because that then alleviates us of any accountability or responsibility, even if that accountability is just to be self-aware enough that we should look for the gray in the situation, not the black or white judgment. Right. Yeah. When you have that judgment or you settle that discussion in your mind, it kind of removes your moral obligation. As you know, like you become more successful. And at least for me, I feel morally obligated to play a role in the things that I'm passionate and care about in just understanding humans. So I try to empathize with every human. But sure, if you can draw a judgment about an individual or a group of individuals, uh, and that makes you less inclined to give, that is the case. Now, fortunately, we are in a community uh, full of amazing, amazing donors and full of some amazing supporters. However, I, I like to I like to draw parallels to my to my friends uh, that run animal organizations. And, you know, sometimes I look at the amount of support uh, that sheltering a stray animal receives versus sheltering a child or a family or a human being and the compassion and care that social that even on social media that mobilizes around an animal that has been abused or neglected like i said i just said 33 percent of our adults walking into our building were victims of childhood sexual abuse I don't see that support mobilizing in that same wave. I don't see that same compassion. I don't see that same amount of like energy around our issue. So there's still something that's hardwired in us about that population. Data can inform what we're doing and also be a strong tool as you're talking with individuals who don't know. You know, I think that's it. I don't, you know, nobody intends to be have a ill heart, um, but they just don't know. And without a real strong data set, without me being able to connect the dots relatively quick, they're going to continue to draw those assumptions. Perhaps we don't see, we meaning society doesn't see so many homeless people on the streets. And I wonder then if when we do see manifestations of homelessness, such as panhandling at traffic junctions, we see those 
situations with uh, or through a different lens. And I know that you've seen that and, and you've seen some of the reporting on that. And I wonder what reaction you have to panhandling as a manifestation of homelessness and, and our reaction to that. I'll do the, uh, the PC thing because my initial reaction when I, the reporting started to surface and uh, the population was being painted as individuals who were taking advantage of the system or of uh, people as they're coming and going uh, from work. And that's hard for me to understand because, again, it's not really visible in our community. I mean, the needs of anybody is not really visible. So this is the only representation. So I noticed as the community noticed that it was increasing, right? And maybe as an entrepreneurial person, if you are somebody who's struggling, experiencing homelessness or not, maybe you're just on the edge and you're seeing individuals have success panhandling, then maybe you're inclined to do so because maybe just like the gentleman that I had seen in the news story had experienced several bouts of homelessness who had a permanently disabling condition, which restricted the amount of hours that he could work per week, which limits the amount of employers that are going to take a chance on you. And if you have questionable transportation, you talk about all of the rings and the reduction of opportunity. It's so immense. But if you can get to 72nd and Dodge and get there early enough, and maybe at the right time of day, and maybe you meet some kind-hearted people and they give you some money to support what you do with the money, I don't know. But that's like, that's just people trying to meet their needs. Isn't that a better way of addressing that than them, you know, taking something from an individual? Um, most of those individuals that I've encountered, and I maybe have a biased lens, but have been relatively polite. They're not yelling at me. And I choose right? It's consumer choice. So I choose whether to interact. I choose whether to give. And if it's annoying to us or it makes us feel uneasy, then maybe we should check ourselves and look ourselves in the mirror. What is that triggering inside of you? Is there a deeper burning issue? Whether you give or not, like I said, whether you give to an individual who's asking whether they're panhandling or they're sitting outside of a restaurant is entirely up to you. I will draw no judgment one way or another. That's a personal decision. But if it causes like a visceral reaction, I think that that's a perfect time for you to self-reflect on what's going on inside of you. Why do you feel that way? And then just like anything, there's there'll be that one story where the guy drove up in an F-350 and got out and, you know, was wearing $300 cowboy boots and, you know, all of a sudden walked to the corner they're not making that much money. So for that story to play out in reality, I would have to see it because I've seen people out there just like you talked about the Midwest conditions on very cold days and in very hot days to make very little money. So that's the reality of the situation. And I just wish we could have a conversation as a community about the needs of the people versus making it a public safety issue. There is a safety component to that. Our citizens and our people should feel safe as they come and go. But those people standing on those medians are our citizens. They are our community as well. So it should be a two-sided conversation. And we should try to get at the root of what's causing these people to be out there panhandling. Is it a lack of jobs, a lack of transportation, a lack of, I don't know. 
from my fears They've never questioned anything Never disagreed Sometimes I think they must have worn their ears When you see a cane, I see a clock When you see a crowd, I see a flock Maybe you are more understanding and self-reflective because of your own lived experience as well as your work in the field. And I do want to talk with you about that. But perhaps before we do that, we should paint the broader picture of the state of homelessness in this area. I'd say the numbers, according to our HUD mandated point in time count, we don't have those official numbers of the most recent count, which you know just occurred a few weeks ago. But initial indicators are the numbers that they accounted were up from the year before. Um, talking with other shelter providers, actually, I was just at a meeting prior to coming here. We were spending three hours together as a community trying to remedy service delivery and how we serve the population. They're seeing more of a demand. We all receive varying levels of funding from housing and urban development. There's discussions about drastically cutting that budget. So we have to have those kinds of conversations. So I would say at the very least, homelessness has remained relatively steady, likely increased at our specific shelter in Micah House. You know, we served 897 people in 2016, 857 people in 2017. One would say, is that a decrease? Well, then I asked my staff, and there were 70, 71 people we, we served that didn't stay long enough for us to complete the entire intake packet, which sometimes takes 45 minutes to an hour. So maybe they came on on a Friday and my key, either case manager didn't have time to get that initial hour intake done or the family was moving in. By Monday, they were gone again. So there were 70 some people there. So we served over 900 last year. And you look at those two years, us as an agency, those are in the top three uh, years of service in our 31-year history. So the issue is still very relevant. I say anytime a good, a, probably a good measure, there's probably 700 to 1,000 people staying within the shelter system locally, and that's including some domestic violence shelters, and that's including all the local homeless shelters. Um, so for being a great community with low unemployment, um, affordable cost of living, the issue is still very relevant. And what we're doing about it, like I said, we, we are getting together as a community of providers and trying to be solution focused, trying to work and get ahead of the issue. But it's a very hard thing when affordable housing uh, is against us, the number of vouchers, you got this looming potential budget crisis over here. And then you have all these different agencies and their executive directors that are trying to run their own shops and uh, I think people forget their businesses and my business model is 
I let people stay. I feed them, give them clothes, hygiene products, and I don't charge them anything. It's kind of the worst business model in the world. So I depend on philanthropy. So ultimately, I got to be somewhat sure that the money's coming to allow me then to focus on the data and the issues and how do we resolve this. So it's complex. It's it's a very complex thing. But I, you know, rest assured, if you're listening to this, there are a lot of people working around the issue. I mean, if you could have been at that meeting today, we're talking, we had 45, 50 people in the room. And these are monthly meetings that we're having together. And we're trying to take my shelter vantage point and people doing rapid rehousing and the individuals doing street outreach and, you know, the perspective of healthcare and, you know, the perspective of the VNA and all of these different, very intelligent people. And how do we serve this population today? How do we serve the population that's coming? How do we reduce it? it it's, uh, it's just a massive, massive issue. So let's talk about your own experience. Yeah. There is, as you suggested, a stigma that society would attach to homelessness. And so before we explore your childhood and, and your own experiences growing up, Tell me about the moment that you decided that you were going to make public your own experiences with homelessness. Yeah, so, you know, I started at Micah House in November of 2015, and I never thought homelessness, my lived experience versus what I was doing professionally, would ever come full circle. Now, I've done human services work for the entirety of my career. It is my passion. But I just never thought the two things would line up. I'm passionate about juvenile justice, passionate about child welfare, passionate about just about anything that you can inform me about. Um, so the opportunity afforded itself. You know, I interviewed. Um, I shared it uh, a little with my brother about, you know, all right, now I have this position in this role. And at the time, we were trying to identify a family success story that could either be representative at our fundraiser via a video or maybe literally come on stage and tell their story and their journey to relate to the people in our audience. You know, the four to 500 people that don't have a great understanding of the issues that they experience. So talk about the trials, the tribulations. And then we had great stories. I mean, great as in a lot of tragedy, uh, a lot of failures, and then ultimately a triumph. The problem was, as I was talking with these families, their messaging was off. And if I know anything, anything that I've learned is the messenger and the message matter. They both matter equally. So a powerful story isn't going to do it alone if you fumble the message on delivery. So the decision a few months prior to our fundraiser, um, yeah, I'm thinking, oh no, what, what, what am I going to do? I'm going to fumble this first fundraiser. And I finally just said, you know what? I have a powerful story that I can lean on. I've experienced homelessness. I'm just going to show it to the world. So I picked up the phone, uh, called my brother Jason. And I, you know, Jason and I are very similar people. And he said, yeah, do it. That, that'd be awesome. So I said, all right, here's the deal. And I had staff members like, can we check your speech? I'm like, no, I, I've got this figured out. Uh, they did get some sort of indication uh, on my like three or four uh, slide slideshow that I had. We have we have two big screen projectors because we simulcast the Derby at this event, and it's a big ballroom over at the Mid America Center. Um, you know, so we probably have I think we had that room set for 
46 tables, all 10 tops. Um, it's a derby event, so people are dressed in their derby best. Um, and I get up on stage, um, the second to last thing that we do for the event, and I give the testimony of, of the work in trying to paint a positive picture on those we serve. And, you know, I get up there and I said, you know, no longer, and I say, it, that's why I say that term drive-by judgment, no longer can we do drive-by judgments. No longer can that be acceptable. I, as a formerly homeless individual, can no longer tolerate it. When I see families walking into Micah House, I imagine my mom walking in with my brothers and sisters and myself. And I would want that. I would want her to be treated in a certain sort of way. And I, I started and I incorporated the humor. My mom absolutely loves those like 600-page romance novels with a uh, gentleman kind of half shirtless riding a horse. Um, she absolutely loves those. So that was one of the slides. And then probably the most powerful slide, and it still means so much to me as a reflective picture, but there's a picture of me in front of my birthday cake, uh, my sixth birthday, which happens to be in January. And we had received housing uh, in November. So I'm sitting in front of this cake about to blow out the candles, a spaghetti on my face, a mullet, you know, just disheveled kid. My mom probably couldn't afford a haircut, so we had to rock the mullet. Um, but I'm smiling ear to ear. And the point that I wanted to accent is kids are resilient as long as we can lift them out of that situation and out of that play. When we're unable to do that, it has the exact opposite effect. So if you want the community to be better, there has to be resources for kids experiencing all sorts of ills. So the event was a was a huge success, uh, a round of applause, and you know, kind of, you know, it's kind of that moment where you're like a little fuzzy on the details. I get off stage and I'm walking to the back of the room and like I'm like, oh my gosh, yeah, this this room didn't even know, and I had I had maybe told ten people in my life about my experience being homeless prior to that. It used to be the thing that I ran furthest from. It was a scar and a scar that I didn't want to show people. But over the last almost, you know, three years now, I've pulled it closer and therefore have had more success, been more empowered, and I think have had more impact on changing the perceptions of the population. So that's my advice is uh, if anybody's listening for, for uh, James Symes' advice is, you know, those things that you try to run from, embrace them and all their beauty, all of their ugly, um, and let them out to the world. And when you feel comfortable, um, have that shared experience and bring, bring people closer to an issue because you lived through that. You'll be better because of it, and they will too. And it's just been tremendous. So. I maybe talk about it too much now. Like sometimes I question myself, am, am I like pandering on my story? And people always assure me that I'm not. So there's always that thing in your brain that tries to tell you not to do it because I shut it out for so long. So when it's this different thing, it's like your brain's like, well, maybe you're doing this. Maybe you're doing that. Again, we don't charge rent. Sometimes my story ultimately is the story that causes a donor to write a check and if, if that's useful for the folks that we serve, I'm going to keep telling it. And like I say, shouting from the rooftops um, that I am the face of homelessness. 
And that's just to say that anybody can take my position, regardless of their past circumstances. Everyone has potential, regardless of opportunities they've been afforded. That's just a very important thing for us to remember. a little bit about what your childhood was like but not necessarily through the lens of homelessness i I just want to hear what your childhood was like from your perspective the homelessness thing you really from my childhood perspective i thought we were like camping you know not knowing what camping even is really a lot of sleeping bags and we were figuring out the food situation um so that's kind of what i remember about homelessness but growing up you know living in that a three-bedroom house, sharing a bedroom with two older brothers. Uh, I remember the first time in that house that we got a window air conditioning unit. I remember this specifically because our rooms were all on the second floor, so this house would get so hot. But I remember that first day we got that window air conditioning unit, and it was right off our main entryway. We popped it in the window, and I say, you know, There we were laying like hot dogs in a package on the floor, this cold air blowing on our face. So there's always been this real appreciation for the finer things in life. And that air conditioning is one thing that I don't skimp on today. My place is always going to be a a climate that I enjoy. Even if I have to pay a little bit more, I can because there were some hot, hot days and there were some cold, cold winters. Uh, I don't remember a morning where, you know, we weren't all like in sweatshirts, sweatpants, and then having blankets as we're shuffling through the house. Um, so, but through that, you ha- again, have appreciation, um, but not to say it was all good, right? There is some bullying that occurs. There was a stigma that I even experienced walking up to the free and reduced lunch line. It was at the time that literally you'd stand in a different line if you had a free and reduced lunch ticket. So what I did basically throughout the entire entirety of middle school is not eat lunch. And people thought that was because I was a rebel and I was doing something cool. No, I I just couldn't muster up the courage to stand in that line and kind of lick my wounds. I had too much pride. And probably one of the bigger regrets is not having perspective is I remember when my mom did have to utilize food assistance. And I remember having conversations trying to restrict the days and times that she was going to use that assistance 
Because the last thing I wanted is somebody that I know to see my mom using that assistance. And man, if I could go back and change some of those conversations as a kid, I surely would. Um, but I appreciate my mom and all the work that she did to this point. But so it's like, there's a lot of things going on through a little kid. And I think in that little brief snippet, you can get the eyes of any kid who's experiencing poverty or homelessness, all the variables that they are considering. And I didn't even talk about school, right? I didn't even talk about sporting events. I didn't even talk about family vacations, all of which weren't happening, you know? Like, so it's real complex. And these kids, as they're coming to school, are worrying about a lot of things, things that adults are just accustomed to worry about. But these kids are as well. You know, you're experiencing the heat in the house, the cold in the house, walking to that free and reduced lunch line. These are really heavy hitting issues. And you're right, that does skew me to be more empathetic um, to individuals experiencing those troubles. Um, so I, I try to take that into consideration as well, but I think my empathy on those issues isn't wrong. So I'm comfortable taking the standpoint that I do, and I will advocate on behalf of all those kids and families experiencing the same things we did. What was it in your life that helped break the cycle? When you boil it down to it wasn't that there was a pile of money it wasn't anything i think when you look at all of my brothers and sisters uh, we were very fortunate that it wasn't a generational poverty thing there wasn't multiple cycles it just happened to be my parents divorced my mom was working very intelligent smart hardworking lady there was just six of us and her as seven people she had to feed so the the apartment that we were staying in didn't fit code requirements so we moved out so I think really when you boiled to the success of all my brothers and sisters, yeah, was my mom somewhat absent? That's probably her greatest regret, but she was absent because she was working two and three jobs and continuing her education and doing these things that are amazing. I can sit here today and say, that is amazing. The fact that my mom would finish a day of nursing or teaching students at the local community college and then go off to high V to work a part-time job. And that's again, while I'll be an advocate for increasing the minimum wage, because even if my mom only had to work two jobs, it would have bought more time at home. She would have had more sanity. You know, it, there's so much to say about that. She is a hardworking, hardworking woman. So I think that thread, I remember when I, uh, oh man, she, I got a paper route at an early age, and this is when I learned my mom's famous phrase, God gave you two working legs. So I tried to get my mom to help out on the paper route one day by driving driving me around. It might have been raining or I might have just been lazy. She said, God gave you two working legs. And that's my mom's like nudge on the door is you took on this responsibility. You're earning the money. Go do the work. So, uh, and she would say that in various, if I stayed at a friend's house too late and it's about to be curfew and I'd try to call to get a ride and she'd say, God gave you two working legs and I guess you should have left earlier. So all of that is coming from a place of heart and my mom really instilling that value of hard work. And that's why today, like having a long week to me is like, oh, that's, you know, somewhat normal. And so if you can take that and apply that to a life that's somewhat successful, I feel like I'm eclipsing even my peers, and I started so much further beyond uh, as far as having opportunities early on. So that hard work, my mom, seeing that, that value that she instilled in all of us, um, 
you know, she has six kids that have graduated with four-year degrees. And, you know, two of us have master's degrees and two are currently in the process of considering doing that. And that doesn't happen unless we have that model, that pillar, that hard worker that we see day to day. Maybe as a kid, you didn't tell her the right things or you didn't appreciate it as much when you couldn't get a ride to and fro. But now reflecting back, that was that was huge. So clearly that's not necessarily the situation confronting some of the homeless people that you serve at the Micah House. Some of the people you serve at Micah House, this this is not their context. And they may be constrained by other factors in, in ACEs or otherwise. So what is the work that you do at Micah House to help transition people from uh, homelessness? Just knowing the system, one of the things we have to do from a system standpoint is bring them in and get them settled and get them assessed as quick as we possibly can. So that will allow them to get on uh, lists for resources that much quicker. So the speed at which we do things is vitally important. Also understanding the ACEs work, common lingo in the field is being trauma-informed. So we are heavily trauma-informed knowing the degree of trauma. And then the programming that we have started doing. So we are primarily a family shelter. Um, and seeing the kids in our childcare setting when we do adult classes, I thought maybe we were causing more chaos. So I started to look nationally to see, oh, who else is doing what in this space? And I came across an agency in D.C. Uh, called the Homeless Children's Playtime Project. I had a great conversation with their executive director. So we run a trauma-informed play program for our kids on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday night. Well, how is that trauma-informed? Well, we're giving kids in a homeless shelter that normally don't have any choice or freedom in their day opportunities to play and express themselves with healthy adults. So it's so incredibly important. And then what we're doing with adults on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday nights is Tuesday nights we're doing various financial education. So sometimes gam gambling prevention education, uh, other times really just knowing the ins and outs of your credit score. Um, others talk about predatory lending and why it's, you know, not a great decision to, um, you know, go to a, a potentially buy here, pay here place or um, those types of lending situations. Um, and then Wednesday nights, uh, we've been real fortunate to get yoga and mindfulness going, and that's relatively recent. But if you know anything about trauma, um, my, having a sense of yourself and being able to kind of bring yourself in and out of a state, an erratic state, if you're talking about an individual who's been triggered or maybe experiencing anxiety or depression. So that's a really cool thing. And then one of the things I get most excited about is Thursday nights is, you know, I get to teach a class called Transformation Thursday and really just changing the perception that these folks have of themselves because our society has put that on them. So taking the concepts of positive psychology that Dr. Martin Seligman has laid out over numerous years. And I focus on positive emotions and I talk about getting in a state of flow and we talk about the importance of relationships and why it's important to have a sense of meaning and a goal setting, goal setting and achievement. All of these things are very important to anybody. They're vitally important to this population who like I reframe for them, you know, I reframe their homeless situation as a potential to restart your entire life. Is that hard? Yes. Is there a lot of potential in that? Yes. So let's focus on the potential side of things and try to get you steps in the right direction. We also have at Micah House 
and this is unique, a full-time position child program specialist who meets with the parents and talks about issues for the kids. And we're assessing kids on their developmental needs um, and making referrals out. And I think this year, I just pulled the data last week. I think we've assessed 33 or 35 kids. And I think about 12 of those kids required formal support services. So they were they were so low on that assessment that they needed a formal intervention. Well, what happens if you don't intervene with a two, three, or four-year-old? They became a five or six-year-old that walks into school not only having experienced homelessness, likely still in poverty, and behind developmentally, you're setting a kid up to fail. And we can't do that. So we play in our small little part, doing the assessment and referring out and hoping that those services continue as the folks transition back into the community. So, yeah. Let me just talk a little bit more about your own faith in people's potential and how we can perhaps all see and play a role in bringing that out and supporting it and and how you personally see that particular perspective on on humans. Yeah, and I think that's that's a great thing. I think obviously from my lived experience, I know somebody can start here and end there. And there's countless examples of celebrity that have done the same. So I think knowing that and knowing that we are all just humans trying to navigate this big mess together, I think it's so much, it's more fulfilling as an individual if you see everyone that you encounter with potential and you engage in honest conversation and you try to connect and you try to move them forward in a positive way. Now, that means different things depending on the amount of time that you have with an individual. But I think it's so vitally important for anybody. I'm not just talking about those that are experiencing struggles. I think a lot of folks are somewhat stagnant in their lives. Um, Now, they might be living in nice houses, driving nice cars, and have nice things, probably because they were afforded better situations and put in better opportunities to capitalize on that. So I think Understanding your potential allows you to maybe align your purpose for being here. If you're fortunate, you can combine that with something that you're passionate about, maybe not formally through the work you do, but maybe through a volunteer engagement. And I think if we see that potential in everybody, it just makes going through the motions of the day so much better. That's not to say I'm not perfect. Let's, let's be honest. There are days when the ice is thinner, um, and that's why, you know, I, for myself, the things that I've done to put me in a positive state or, you know, like develop a morning routine that's full of, like, motivational and positive videos, taking in engaging podcasts, interviews, uh, trying to learn from individuals who are constantly learning. So I think, I think all of that, if you want to look at the selfish van po- vantage point, is you get a lot out of that experience as well. But also you lift people up and propel them and put them in place to realize their fullest potential. And sometimes people aren't really receptive. Sometimes people don't want unsolicited advice. So you always got to be careful. Um, But I think if you're honest and you're really trying to better them, why not? Why not tell somebody, great job? Why not smile? Why not shake somebody's hand? Why not be that? I always talk about people when I go to Walmart, like I try to like smile and say hello because it catches people off guard. Why not? I mean, I think we can have more of that. It's just better. 
And so, yeah, I believe everyone has potential. And I always say on Thursday nights, I can't wait for the person that's sitting in this classroom that comes, takes my job. Because I, that would be the ideal situation because that would mean they are free of all of those negative self-thoughts, all of those perceptions, stigmas, stereotypes. They've kind of broken free from that and they realize their fullest, fullest potential. And that would be amazing. And, you know, I, I hope anybody listening, they realize that they can do anything they want to do no matter what they did yesterday, no matter what they've done five minutes ago. That is not a reflection on you. Those are experiences that you've navigated. We are all still becoming what we're going to become. And that's a kind of transformative thing day by day. What a good place to be. To listen to this show again and to hear past shows, download the podcast at iTunes, search for Live's radio show with Stuart Chittenden, and leave a review while you're there to let me know what you think of the show. I've been in conversation with James Syme, Executive Director of Mica House. James, thank you for being in the studio. Thank you. I appreciate you having me on. That's the end of this week's show. The sound engineer was Dalimar McTizik. The magnificent Marion Fay helped produce the show. Lives is an executive production of Squish Talks. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week for more community, conversation, and the people that bring community to life.